Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. It's Amy Coney Barrett, a far-right conservative jurist from Indiana that President Trump has nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. This, just one week after the death of liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Republicans in the Senate have done a complete 180. Back in 2016, Mitch McConnell and others refused to even consider Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee in his final year in office. The argument was that it was an election year and people should have a voice and the next president, therefore, should make the pick. Lindsey Graham at the time. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. Graham is now the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he has quickly backtracked on his words. Ginsburg's death has come with less than two months before the election, while Antonin Scalia's death in 2016 came much earlier in the election calendar. He passed on February 13th. But instead of focusing on the political fight, which appears to be a foregone conclusion, as Republicans have the votes they need, Today, we're going to focus on the legal ramifications of Barrett's ascendance to the bench. Joining us now is Andrew Siegel. He's the Associate Dean of the Law School at Seattle University. And uh, the first thing that everyone's talking about is this is going to mark a sharp shift to the right for the high court. But what does Judge Barrett herself bring to the bench? Judge Barrett is an extremely accomplished, uh, quite young judge. She was a legal academic beforehand. She has the uh, highest level legal skills, no one is doubting that. She also has a very strong record, both before she was on the bench and while she's on the bench, of being um, down-the-line conservative on most of the hot-button issues like abortion and guns that seem to motivate American voters. And has she ruled on any of these hot-button issues since she's been on the bench? She's only been there for three years since the president nominated her to the appellate court. Yeah, she has not, um, she has not ducked hard issues and um, she has proven to be as conservative as people expected when she was nominated. Um, she has, in two separate cases involving three separate abortion restrictions in Indiana, cast votes, uh, most of them dissenting, um, suggesting that um, some pretty significant abortion restrictions are constitutional. She has also um, cast significant doubt in an important case about the constitutionality of a lot of gun control legislation. So, yeah, she is making a mark on the right in just three years on the bench. But adding to that is that Judge Barrett doesn't seem to subscribe to the issue of stare decisis, which is that the courts tend to respect precedent by sticking with previous rulings. She's suggesting that the previous rulings are probably, when the stakes are high enough and the Constitution is clear enough, entitled to less weight than the court, um, the court has given it previously. Um, it's an outlier position. She's not the only one that takes that position. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, I think that she, like Justice Thomas, who, who's already on the court, um, is going to be someone who is going to be prepared to um, take a fresh look at a lot of precedents she disagrees with. Aside Roe versus Wade, what other hot button issues are likely to come before the court in the next couple of years? Well, we've already alluded to two very major uh, two very major areas, which is abortion rights and gun legislation, where undoubtedly there's lots of stuff percolating in the lower courts. And we're, going to, and we're going to be hearing a lot soon. Um, you can add to that, um, there, is a, there is great debate right now about the scope of religious exemptions from various civil rights laws and civil rights protections, and a push from the right for much greater exemptions from those laws, and you would think that Judge Barrett would be, would be sympathetic to those. Um, we have 
waiting a very complicated statutory challenge to the continuation of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which is due to be argued in, you know, about two months before the court, and uh, Judge Barrett may be on the court by then, and maybe this, uh, potentially the decisive vote there. Um, add to that, of course, the fact that the court is dealing on at least a weekly basis right now, and probably soon to be on a daily basis, with challenges to various election procedures um, related and various issues relating to the coming election and might, any controversy that might come. So it's hard to imagine a more political or more charged time for a new justice to be joining the court. Is she, do you think, going to be a reliable ally to President Trump once she gets on the bench? I think that all indications are that to the extent that you consider kind of President Trump part of the conservative judicial agenda, and he certainly has embraced it, that um, Judge Barrett is um, in a lockstep with them on those issues. I think that she is an extremely smart person and a good lawyer, and on some lower-stakes issues related to procedure or statute, she might cast a surprising vote. But on the kind of issues that President Trump cares about and the Republican Party cares about, I think she's going to be a very reliable vote. Andrew Siegel, Associate Dean of the Law School at Seattle University, thank you so much. For more, let's turn now to ABC's legal analyst, Royal Oaks. Judge Barrett is just 48 years old, uh, has been on the Seventh Circuit since 2017. Uh, the vote for her was kind of close a few years ago, 55 to 43, and it basically resulted, I think, from the fact that some senators on the Democrat side thought that her judicial philosophy might be antagonistic to Roe versus Wade. California Senator Dianne Feinstein sort of famously said, When you read your speeches... Um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for for years in this country. That was very controversial with some people. But it did put the Democrats on notice that possibly this could be a vote against Roe versus Wade. Well, she's a, a devout Catholic. We know that. But uh, three years on the appellate level, that's at least by most legal standards for uh, Supreme Court nominees. That's not a long, lengthy record to evaluate. There isn't too much of a paper trail after three years. It does give you an idea as to where she's coming from on a lot of issues. But as you can imagine, she really hasn't tipped her hand in terms of the abortion issue. Uh, she did write an article years ago saying that Catholic judges are morally precluded from enforcing the death penalty. But at her confirmation hearing in 2017, she said that judges should not put their personal views above the law. So as the confirmation process goes forward, you can bet that she's going to play uh, by the same rules as so many uh, prospective justices in recent years and try to be uh, very nonspecific and noncommittal about issues that might come up before the court, such as gun control and abortion and immigration. One of the things that I think a lot of the Democrats are seizing on is a paper that she wrote back in 2003 in which she basically takes the philosophy of stare decisis to task. First off, for those who aren't lawyers, what does that mean and what is her view on it? Stare decisis is that you will honor what the court has said in the past, but not always. For example, the famous Brown versus Board of Education decision it wiped out the previous segregation-based decisions. And of course, that meant that the court turned its back on past decisions that were deemed bad. Well, theoretically, somebody could say, in general, I will respect what the court has done 
but occasionally we will overturn the past decisions. And that sets off alarm bells for Democrats who are worried about the uh, abortion issue. But that could go for pretty much any issue because you look at, uh, you mentioned Brown versus the Board of Education, Dred Scott was overturned, Karamatsu was uh, overturned, although in a, a separate ruling. Uh, that just means she's willing to look at previous decisions and reevaluate them based on her interpretation. Isn't that what a judge is supposed to do? That's exactly right. And of course, that's why these confirmation hearings are, are so thorny and tough because you, you've got, in this case, the Democrats going to try to establish that she's already judged it. She'll try to convince people, no, she has an open mind. The fact of the matter is, as you suggest, not every past decision deserves to be recognized as a good one and uh, abided by indefinitely. But the idea is you give a lot of deference to the past. It would take a lot to get you to overcome something that the court has established in the past. But uh, again, people are very suspicious because of her writings and her religious views. And so basically, President Trump may have uh, turned this this election into a referendum, not so much on how he's handled COVID or his personality or character, but instead how people feel about the Supreme Court and especially abortion. And then looking at the abortion issue, a lot of that boils down to the right to privacy that is not explicitly written in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Do we know if she recognizes a right to privacy? That's a great question. And of course, this has been such a contentious issue. When Roe versus Wade came down, uh, of course, the fact is that the word abortion is not in the Constitution. But uh, Justice Blackmun, who wrote Roe versus Wade, said, you know what? There is a right to privacy. It is implied by so much of the language of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And we believe, writing this decision, that a woman's right to choose is part of that right of privacy. So, no, it's not explicit in terms of privacy or abortion, but judges draw inferences from the language, and that's been the source of the debate for decades now over abortion. But inferences and implications are one thing. The explicit writing of the Constitution is another. She prides herself, uh, she, Amy Coney Barrett, as a textualist, and just by that philosophy, you wouldn't think she would recognize a right to privacy. Well, that's right, and it may be that if she's confirmed and she's free to express herself uh, fully, she may end up uh, saying in, in her decisions or her concurrences that, you know what, there is no explicit right of privacy or right to uh, uh, choose in the Constitution. And as a result, she might be receptive to arguments that uh, would suggest that uh, the states should be free to impose substantial restrictions on abortion rights. Most people are, are suspecting that there really won't be enough votes, even if uh, an anti-abortion justice is now confirmed that there wouldn't be enough votes to absolutely overturn Roe versus Wade, but the court might be more receptive to increased restrictions on abortion rights. But aside from abortion rights, the right to privacy is, is something that touches almost every part of American life. And if, if she doesn't believe in that and there are enough justices to side with her, that, that could have ramifications for decades to come. Absolutely. And of course, it would be a huge split with the past. Even before the Roe versus Wade decision, there was the Griswold decision that involved privacy privacy that involved birth control. And the U.S. Supreme Court said uh, years before Roe, you know what, folks have a right to live their lives uh, and their privacy is paramount. And, and therefore, we're going to strike down laws that are motivated by religious objections to contraceptive birth control. So that's the kind of thing that theoretically could be in play. 
if somebody just thinks absolutely, well, there's, it doesn't say privacy in the Constitution, so I'm not going to vote for that. That would uh, cause her to appear very out of step with precedent over the last many decades. You mentioned Griswold and Roe. Are there any other significant legal findings that are based on, on privacy that some opponents may try to push through and have the court here now that she's on the bench? Well, of course, the search and seizure issues, uh, anti-terrorist actions. Uh, we've had a lot of arguments and legal cases over the Patriot Act. And so you have a split. You have some people who say, doggone it, of course, we want to go after terrorism, but there's a limit. You you have to respect the privacy of Americans. You can't just look, you can't get uh, access to people's uh, telephone records and telephone calls. Uh, once again, how far are you going to argue the privacy issue? To what degree is it sacrosanct is something that the justices should protect? And who knows whether uh, a Justice Barrett would shift to the right and join some conservatives and give the government increased power, for example, in the area of anti-terrorism that might infringe on privacy rights. And finally, before we let you go, we know that the Republicans and the Senate are trying to push this through before Election Day. So if she is sitting on the bench during that lame duck session where we may have a challenge to this election because, it, by all intents and purposes, it appears to be very, very close. Has she written anything that may indicate her thoughts on presidential power or the electoral process? No, she really hasn't tipped her hand on that. Uh, it, it's just so bizarre, though, to think that the, the president is just coming right out and saying, well, I want this justice confirmed because, doggone it, I think there's likely to be a legal challenge about this election. I see fraud uh, around the corner. Uh, people are just scratching their heads and wondering, can, can this really be? Well, it could be. I remember back in 2000 with Bush versus Gore, the U.S. Supreme Court voted five to four. and Democrats uh, will forever say that, that a right-wing court handed the presidency to a person who lost the popular vote. All right, Royal Oaks, ABC's legal analyst, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And now the fight begins. I'm Jeff Pogel, and that'll do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Life Beat with Marina Rockinger and our hourly news updates, available at comonews.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening, and have a good week. <laughs>